Our study this morning contains three parts or three sections and in each one of the section there's a question. In the first, the Sadducees ask Jesus a question about the resurrection. And in the second section, we're going to see a scribe ask Jesus a question about the commandments. And then finally, in the last one, Jesus asks them a question about the Messiah. So we'll begin reading in Mark chapter 12, uh, verse 18. Some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaves his wife behind and leaves no child, his brother should take the wife and produce offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and dying left no offspring. The second also took her and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. The seven also left no offspring. And last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? Jesus told them, Are you not deceived because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now concerning the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses... In the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly deceived. So right here we see that there are some Sadducees. The word Sadducee means the righteous, to be righteous. And it tells us that they uh, say there is no resurrection. That's so bizarre, isn't it? It's just bizarre to find a religious leader in Israel that does not believe in the resurrection. What on earth? How did they get to that point? What has happened? Well, the truth is we don't know. The Sadducees have, no, have not left any written record of themselves. At least there's nothing that's extant. And so most of the things we know about them are written by their opponents. And so uh, that doesn't mean that they've been given a fair shake. Obviously, the New Testament gives them a fair shake, but uh, others may not have been as kind in their descriptions of them, basically the Mishnah and Josephus and stuff like that. So it's difficult for us to connect the dots on how they came to these conclusions. But here we see that they do not believe in the resurrection. Now, many priests were Sadducees. Think of it. You know what the priests were. They were the descendants from the tribe of Levi that served as priests in the temple. Many of them were Sadducees. They were wealthy, and they controlled the majority of the Sanhedrin. We talked about how that's the, the Supreme Court, and that they had that little office, or that, that little the court of hewn stone right there off, off the side of the temple where they met. That was the, the highest court of the land. And they had the majority seat. Now, their existence uh, as a ruling class was dependent upon the temple. The reason they existed is because of their service in the temple. And so once the temple was destroyed, the Sadducees basically faded away from history. But at the moment, while we still have the temple, they were very powerful. 
And so, uh, because they were dependent upon the temple, they did not want to see the boat rocked. And this may be why all of a sudden we're finding uh, these guys interjecting themselves because they have a vested interest in keeping peace with Rome. Now, theologically, these fellows, they denied the resurrection of the dead. They denied the afterlife. They denied the existence of angels. There's some indications that they elevated the Pentateuch over the rest of Scripture. And the rest of Scripture would be just the Old Testament. So there's some indication that they really camped out on the first five books of the Old Testament because Moses wrote them and it was the law. And it was, uh, there's some indication that they elevated it over the rest of Scripture. We know that they denied and rejected the oral tradition that was taught by the Pharisees. And uh, they saw God as in the distance, as more of an observer. He was not uh, really involved in our daily lives. And God had left it up to man to, to rule and to bring justice on earth. And that uh, the righteous are rewarded by God on earth. And so they lived for the moment. They lived for life right now rather than dreaming of some future life that's not even really going to happen. So this is where they were at. Uh, intellectually and theologically. Uh, their question, of course, as we see here, is drawn from the Pentateuch. It's drawn from the writings of Moses. And what they're referring to is a passage in Deuteronomy 25. It's verses 5 through 10. And this passage... Uh, let me see if I got that there. What's that? Um, the, uh, the passage that, they drove, that they're referring to is basically the idea that uh, from the very beginning when they inherited, when they inhabited the, the land, the land was given to the 12 tribes. And so as it was given to the 12 tribes, different pieces of land was allotted to families. And so uh, that was the family's inheritance. So if a man had married a woman and, and he passed away before having a, a male heir, then the, his brother who was unmarried would, would marry her or the nearest relative would marry her. And if they had a child that was a son, that son would carry the original father's name so that the family did not lose its inheritance. So here we have a situation where this woman has went through seven men and uh, they've all died. Um, so she's something else and then finally she dies and there's no heir there's no child and so this story this uh, situation we don't know if it comes from the book of Tobit which is apocryphal or wherever but this was a, the conundrum we gotcha question and they probably had proposed this to the Pharisees and the Pharisees probably had a really hard time answering this question we don't know that but the purpose was to illustrate the absurdity of the resurrection. If there is a resurrection from the dead, and this is what's happened, what is God going to do? Obviously, there's no logical solution to this issue. Obviously, there's no resurrection. We can also see from their question that... Uh, uh, 
well, we don't, we don't actually see this. Jesus actually explained it to us. And uh, what Jesus, how he responded to them in verse 24 is he said, you know, the problem here is that you guys do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God. And there it is. That was their problem. They didn't know the Scriptures. They didn't know the Bible. And they didn't know God. If they had, uh, you know, these guys remind me of those Ivy League Bible scholars on the Discovery Channel. They are as blind as a bat. But if they would humble themselves, you know, they could know God. And then God would open their eyes and they could understand. Well, from their question, we can tell that they have a misunderstanding about the afterlife. They see the resurrection as more of a uh, resuscitation because they think that when you, when you die, if there was an afterlife, you would just move right in to the afterlife with no significant change. Things would just be carrying on as they were. In the Bible, uh, God reveals things over a period of time. He doesn't tell everything to us all at once. And so you kind of need this whole book right here. And even when you've got all of this, sometimes God still left some things unanswered. But when it comes to issues about angels and the resurrection or sin or salvation, you kind of need the whole thing. And uh, it's revealed progressively in Scripture. And it is one of the great evidences that the Bible is written by God because it's been written over uh, many, many centuries by one person who has been revealing himself and his plan over a long period of time, longer than any human being has ever been alive, obviously. And so uh, when it comes to this resurrection issue, um, the Old Testament is clear that there is an afterlife, but the details are not there. Specifically, there's enough there, but not a great deal of detail. And when this is the case, it leaves the, the, the door open for all kinds of guesswork and conjecture. It's kind of like, what's going to happen to America during the Great Tribulation? You know? So everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's got ideas about what's going to happen. So there's a lot of room, a lot of, and there's a lot of latitude because... All of a sudden, one person's idea is maybe as good as the next guy's. That's a dangerous place to be, isn't it? And so here these guys have proposed this question to Jesus about the great unknown. What's going on with the resurrection? What is there really one? If there is, what's it like? And so when Jesus begins to answer this, these men, he is speaking from authority and he is speaking from knowledge. And he is telling them about what's really going to be like, because he knows. And so this must have been earth-shattering. He, uh, he says, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Luke tells us the added detail, because they can't die anymore. That's why they are not giving in marriage, but they are like angels in heaven. That doesn't mean that they become angels. We don't become angels. We're like angels. How are we like angels? 
when we, when we rise from the dead, we will neither marry nor be given in marriage because we don't die anymore. We'll be just like the angels are in the sense that marriage is no longer a necessity for procreation. And so there will be a community of people in heaven that we will not be marrying each other. Then Jesus turns to their Pentateuch and he turns to Moses and he goes to the story of the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 verse 6. This is a pivotal key passage in Israel's history. And he's going to a place in Scripture that they all knew like the back of their hand, but they had missed it. It was right under their nose the whole time. And he talks about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When God spoke to Moses, he told him that I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. Not I was their God, but I am. And so it is the present tense. He's telling them that they are still alive. They're just as alive today as they were then. And I am still their God. And so this is why Jesus tells them that they were in error, that they were badly deceived, greatly mistaken. The, the literal rendering of that would be, badly you wander. Well, all of this is transpiring there in the temple complex, and somebody in the audience is a scribe, and he is listening to this whole thing. And what he has just heard, and this scribe was probably a Pharisee, what he has just heard is Jesus affirming what the Pharisees have been believing and teaching all along, that there is a resurrection. And so he approaches Jesus, and they have a conversation. This is the second portion where there's another question raised. And it begins at verse 28. One of the scribes approached. When he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Well, this is the most important, Jesus answered. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So, heart and soul, mind and body. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have correctly said that He is one, and there is no one else except Him. And to love Him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that He had answered Him intelligently, He said, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared to question Him any longer. So he asks Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Some of you know who Stephen Hawking is. Stephen Hawking was in search of the master equation that explained everything. An all-encompassing you know, theoretical framework in physics that uh, fully answered all aspects of the universe. 
the theory of everything. It's called TOE. It's one of the big unanswered questions in physics. And when I saw the movie that they made about this young man, I, I thought it was uh, just fascinating. And I just thought it was so cool that somebody had realized that there's probably an underlying equation that God used, which is pretty neat. But the problem is, is that this man was an atheist. He's not an atheist anymore because he's passed away. And so he is very much aware that God exists right now. But at the time, Stephen Hawking was an atheist. And, uh, you know, he even acknowledged that there was great design. He said, there is great design, but it's not God. And so as, as smart as this man was, it seems like at some point he would have asked the one who actually knew the answer. A man who was trapped in a wheelchair from the neck down for most of his life. He had nothing to do but use his mind. And it never happened, apparently. I hope I'm really wrong about that. Well, God has given us a much more important equation. He said, listen, Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. What Jesus was doing there is he was quoting the Shema. And uh, he quoted Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. It's actually a little longer than that. And later other passages were added to the Shema. But uh, they call it the Shema because that word, hear, O Israel, listen, Israel, that very first word for hear is Shema. So they called it Shema. And uh, every devout Jew uh, recited this in the morning and the evening of every day. And they carried a, a miniature scroll in their phylactery, and then they had the longer scroll in their mezuzah, which was kept on the doorpost of their house. And I was reading about this. It reminded me of my house. I was thinking, you know, uh, if the Gestapo burst through your front door, would there be any evidence in your house that you were a believer? How long would it take them to find a Bible? Are there any crosses? I think all of us would say, yes, there is, wouldn't we? We would, we would be busted. So Jesus also did something unique here because he combined Leviticus 19.18 with the Shema that the second most important command is to love your neighbor as yourself. He said, there's no other commandment greater than these. It is the umbrella. All things fall underneath this massive umbrella. If you can keep these two, you've kept them all. It's interesting that the scribe repeated Jesus' words back to him. But when he repeated his words back to him, he didn't say the name of God out of respect. He used pronouns. It's very interesting. He said, you are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one. There is no one except him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, to love your neighbors yourself. It is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. What is he talking about there with the burnt offerings and sacrifices? 
you know, you can you can go to mass, you can up and down, kneeling up and down, and get the wafer put in your mouth, and then go out the door and feel like you did something great. You can come to a Baptist church and sing Heavenly Sunlight, have your Bible in your lap, and then close it, and you go in your car and you leave. You can do things ritualistically, um, but it has no meaning inside in your heart. And so, uh, what about when you're really trying to please God? Are you trying to please God by going to church, opening your Bible, singing Heavenly Sunlight? The Jewish people had this elaborate system that they had to obey that controlled every aspect of their life. And it all culminated with coming to the temple and offering sacrifices. The burnt offering was a was a, was a specific offering where the entire animal was consumed. And it is a picture of full consecration of all that you have to God. Everything you have. But there were sin offerings where you had committed sins, where it was acknowledging sins that you had committed against God. There was the trespass offering that was had to do with sins that you had committed to your fellow man. And so it was vertical and horizontal. And then Romans, remember, uh, present your body as a holy living sacrifice. This is the concept of the burnt offering. And so you can get all wrapped up into that process of trying to please God through this law keeping and miss the fact that what God's really talking about is sins you've committed against Him, sins you've committed against your fellow man, and that the way God wants you to live is in love. Love for each other, love for Him. And this is something that is taught throughout the Old Testament. Look at 1 Samuel 15.22. Just write that one down and, and you'll see it right there. Where it is the heart behind the sacrifices that matters to God. More than just obedience. It's why you're doing it. And so what these sacrifices taught was the necessity of maintaining a sinless fellowship with God and with men. And so this is why Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God because the scribe understood the intent of the law. Remember Paul said that the law was designed to be a tutor to lead you to Christ. And so here was a scribe who understood the purpose behind the law, behind the ritual. And so he was very close to faith. But he still needed to move from you are not far from to inheriting eternal life. He was not there yet. He was close. What was keeping him? Oh, teacher, you are right. There's only one God. So Jesus wanted him to know that you are not just talking to a man. So this is why Jesus asked them a question. Jesus said, you know, you believe in God, believe also in me. Remember in John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. This is what he's telling to this man, this scribe. And so I know I titled this sermon um, Thinking Big because they were thinking so small about what the Messiah was. But you can also call this sermon the scribe because it's all about this man. And I hope that we meet him someday. So this is the question that Jesus asks. It begins in, 
in uh, verse 35. So Jesus asked this question as he taught in the temple complex. He said, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. <coughs> David himself calls him Lord. How then can the Messiah be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says, by the Holy Spirit. Now, isn't that interesting? That's the inspiration of Scripture, isn't it? Now, we remember, to just back up for just a second to kind of appreciate what's going on here. If we remember when the, the Israelites are preparing for the battle of Jericho, and what I'm getting ready to say is in, jo in Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. So Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. When they were getting ready to go uh, to battle with Jericho, Joshua was the guy leading this. And all of a sudden he looks up and there is the angel of the Lord standing in front of him holding a sword. And he's like, whoa, is this, which side is this guy on? And he looks at the man and he said, are you for us or are you, for against, are you against us? Which side are you on? And he said, I come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And so Joshua said, what would you have my servant to do, your servant to do? And he said, remove your sandals for the ground that you stand on is holy. Very much like the burning bush. Remember what God told Moses to do. Remove your sandals for the ground you stand on is holy. Joshua needed to be reminded that it was God's side that he needed to be on. Here in our passage this morning, the Pharisees have been silenced. They came to Jesus with the, with the big laugh out loud question. It was going to make Jesus look stupid. It was the question that had worked on all the Pharisees. And Jesus responded to them in a way that silenced them. Now, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, and they were always arguing theologically with the Sadducees about this matter. And so it was music to their ears to hear Jesus affirming the things that they believed. And so now all of a sudden, they're like, hey, I'm kind of with Jesus. Jesus is with us. And this is why Jesus has proposed this question to the scribes, because the scribes need to realize that it's not the Sadducees' side that they need to be on. It's not the Pharisees' side they need to be on. It's God's. And so this was right between the eyes on this scribe who'd asked this question from God when he asked this question from Jesus. This is what is at stake in this question. And this, is, this passage that he's quoted is from Psalm 110. Verse 1, it is a very short psalm. It is a messianic psalm. It's all about the coming Messiah and his rule. And so here is the passage. This is what is occurring there. Uh, 
the Lord in your Bible, it's probably all capitals for L-O-R-D. That's when you know you have the word for Jehovah or Yahweh. So God the Father declared to my, David's, Lord, Adonai. Sit at my, Jehovah's right hand until I, Jehovah, put your, the Lord's enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, then how can the Messiah be his son? The only conclusion is that the Messiah is David's son, but he is also David's God. You see, they only saw the Messiah as a, uh, a political ruler who was going to have God's hand upon him. But he was just a man in their eyes. But see, Psalm 110 teaches us that the Messiah is much, much more. They weren't just talking to a man. And so this scribe had a decision to make. 